Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. Today, we're talking to Ted Roosevelt, who's a managing partner and founder of Redwood Grove Capital. Ted and I explore a little bit of the history of what's going on in sustainability and climate investing. Ted comes from a lens of capital markets because he spent a career in with Lehman Brothers and Barclays, focusing on things like distressed research and, and leverage finance groups. So that experience really helped Ted look at the market today and find out where opportunities are to invest. But also, he has some great ideas about how we can improve data and make investing in climate and ESG that much more accessible for all. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And as always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Ted, thanks so much for joining me at Experts Only. Well, thank you for having me, John. So we have a lot to cover today, but I do want to step back and get to your roots. You grew up in New York. You know, growing, growing up in New York City, what got you interested in the environment climate change? Yeah, I mean, it goes back even to my birth almost. I was raised by two environmentalists. Uh, their parents were environmentalists and, and so forth back actually many number of generations. So uh, I can't point to an inflection moment where I went from not being an environmentalist to being an environmentalist. It was something right. that was you know part of the kitchen table conversation since uh, since I can remember. And uh, uh, you know, I've had, a, had the, the chance to meet your dad over a decade ago, who, who's also in the finance space. You know, in growing up in New York, is that is is it just natural you're going to move into finance? Like, what triggered your interest there? Uh, you know, I think that's uh, I, I was also my father was in finance, and so that was something that I was introduced to at an early age. But uh, you know, I graduated from college in 1998, and it felt like there was a pretty steady, you know, path into finance at that point. Um, and I don't know that I put you it. You were a political science that. major, right? I was a political science major. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, I mean, I, I would love to tell you that I had a 20 year career plan when I graduated from college. I, I think I was, it was more inertia than anything else. I was going the, the path of least resistance. Yeah. <laughs> and did you go, did you go to get your MBA at Stanford immediately or was that later? No, that was much later. Um, and actually part of the sort of origin story of, of the firm Redwood Grove Capital, um, it was many years later, I went back and I, I didn't get my MBA. I got a master's in science, um, which is a slightly different program. Yeah. Uh, and it was really uh, a moment to pause in my career to think about climate and climate investing. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get to that origin story in a second, because we talked about this a little bit before, but you, know, you came out of school, you ended up uh, back in New York City, you were working at Lehman Brothers, uh, and then started working sort of throughout, throughout different firms in, in New York. You know, in that in that next sort of decade, like where did you begin to really see the opportunity around things like climate tech investing? I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's it's hot now for sure, but really a lot of folks have seen the or have have you know started to believe in the concept of ESG, you know, well over a decade ago. And, and while you know we're, we're we're apex of it today, you know, I know you you started seeing the opportunity much much sooner. Yeah. So you would actually, my, my career was in traditional finance. I, I graduated from college, went to work on, on distressed research, as you mentioned, at Lehman Brothers, uh, was there for a little over a decade, and then ultimately went to a hedge fund, a fixed income hedge fund uh, called Golden Tree. And, and 
didn't really have any direct exposure to ESG investing at the time. But in my non-professional career, I was spending time working on NGO boards that were focused on climate, because as I mentioned, this was something that I've, I'd been interested in my entire life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would say about eight years ago, I'd always been, I had been acutely aware of climate change, but there seemed to be an inflection in how climate scientists were talking about climate and the urgency with which we needed to address it. And I realized that we had at that point a 30 year forecast on climate change, which is probably the most accurate forecast in human history that had proven to be broadly correct. And you know that urgency and having this forecast that had been that had proven to be very accurate led me to start asking the question you know should this forecast be something that investors are looking at hmm. and does the capital markets play a role in solving the issue of climate change and that was sort of the initial soup that i was sort of swimming around in and I went and talked to the folks at Golden Tree as well as, you know, across the industry that I, you know, friends that I'd made over the years. And I found that when I asked the question, is climate change something that ought to be incorporated into an investment process? Not necessarily every single company, not necessarily every sector, but are there areas where it might be insightful? And you know, these are folks that will go down any single rabbit hole they can find to right. be right 52% of the time. I mean, this is, you know, people don't need certainties in investing. They just want higher probabilities. And what I found was the response was pretty universally, you know, a blank stare and a pat on the head. I mean, it, right. it was, you know, as if I had suggested maybe we should incorporate Roman Catholicism into the investment <laughs> right. process. There right. just there wasn't. There wasn't a role, and more importantly, it wasn't worth investigating. And that's when I resigned from from my firm and and actually went into the year doing this fellowship at the Stanford Business School because I didn't have the answer to that question. You know that that climate necessarily was something that that ought to be that was investable, um, particularly from an economic standpoint, not from a moral standpoint. And uh, I spent the better part of that year really investigating that question. Yeah, talk talk me through that for a second. So you, you're a year at Stanford. You're in sort of the heart of innovation in Silicon Valley. Obviously, there's so much moving. What, what time frame is this? So this is in 2014, 2015 time frame. So things like clean energy moving, the clean tech bubble probably at that point it burst, right? Yeah. So VCs were not, you know, really jumping at, at at clean energy. You know, what in that sort of discovery period for you, or uh, were you able to sort of walk out and say, okay, I think the data is becoming clear. There is an investing mythology here. We can start to incorporate it into into some like underwriting. Like, what what was sort of was there a light bulb moment there, or was it just a set of you know sort of building confidence in terms of you know what the opportunity would be? Yeah, I think that the light bulb was actually probably a counterintuitive light bulb moment. Um, so first, you're absolutely right that the clean tech movement was persona non grata in Silicon right. Valley in this time period. It's sort of post a uh, pretty big bust. Uh, and, uh, but, but I was actually looking across different investment styles from VC to the public equity market. And my presumption going into, the, into my you know, year of analysis was the public equity markets are highly efficient. There probably isn't a huge opportunity there. 
And maybe there's an opportunity to kind of pick up the scraps in the VC space. And what I found was uh, there were a lot of people that were focused on the, on the VC space already that were starting to recognize that there were some opportunities there and definitely in the growth private equity space. Um, and so then I, I turned my attention to the public equity space and I didn't, the sort of first question is, is there an inefficiency in this market? And my thought was, well, there's ESG investing is definitely percolated up as a topic. There's more flows going in that direction. And so I started to look at who was doing it and how they were doing it. And it led me very quickly to the ESG data aggregators. And what I found very quickly was the ESG data aggregators were producing information that was, in my assessment, highly insufficient to making true investment decisions. So if you start with the premise or the, or the, the proposition, uh, can I find an economic insight here? I would posit that the ESG data was not helping you find whatever that was, particularly around climate change. Um, and what I found was that the vast majority of public equity managers were relying on that data to make those decisions. Now, that data is the holy grail for the investment universe. We want it to be excellent. We want it to be auditable. We want it to be standardized. We want it to be something that investors can use because it will create an efficiency in terms of the allocation of capital around the true cost of things like climate change. So I, I support the movement. The problem is, is that the data isn't there yet, still right. not there, still there four or five years later. Yeah. Um, and that's when I started realizing that, hey, there might actually be a real substantive economic opportunity because what we were already starting to see, and this was from conversations with climate science, was the, the very real world economic impacts of climate change. And on the most basic level, you're seeing it in increased damage annually from storms and wildfires, but you're also seeing it across industries and across sectors. And as far as I could tell, very few investors in the public equity market were thinking about that when they were making investment decisions. And that is exactly where I, I came to believe the opportunity existed. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, if, you know, obviously the latest trends that we're seeing around ESG and climate to the insurance companies has not been anything new. They've been looking at this stuff now for a while, but you're right. The, 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 the public markets definitely were not there and are coming around. So at what point that uh, evolution, you you said, okay, I'm going to start my own firm here and go after this. Yeah. So at this point, I'm sort of pulling on a thread and, and starting to find opportunity. I'm working with a number of professors uh, at Stanford who were extremely helpful in, in helping me organize my thoughts. And uh, one of them introduced me to my co-founder, a gentleman named Greg Sorurier, who had been working at Dodge and Cox, which is a $280 billion predominantly public equity manager. And he had had at that point the, the access and the insight and the ability to sit down with the CEOs and CFOs of Fortune 500 companies and sort of having gone through a similar evolution himself was asking them, particularly in areas where it was clearly climate was clearly material for their business. And just to sort of level set, when I say material for their business, I'm not talking about 30 years out. This is sort of in a three to five year time period. Right. Reasonable people can presume that this is going to have an impact, an economic impact on their business. And what he discovered when he sat down with, with these CEOs and CFOs is that there was a massive divergence in how different management teams were approaching this problem, ranging from really denying the existence of the problem altogether right. to deploying significant amounts of capital to help the businesses pivot 
to address these issues. And so when I sat down with Greg, we really started to formulate, uh, sit down and figure out how we could build an investment process that was repeatable, that was built on fundamental investment practices, but that could also incorporate climate science into that model where and when it had an economic impact that would give us an insight that we felt that the rest of the market wasn't getting. And when we finished working on that and concluded, hey, we think we actually were finding something here, that's when we realized we were going to, it was worth starting a fund. And when you went to market to raise with that thesis, like what type of response did you get from the LP community? It's really and again. Amazing. What time? What time is this? Like seventeen? This is this? this is end of sixteen, beginning of seventeen. Yeah, and it's it's quite stark the the evolution and the arc uh, that investors have gone through, even in the last four years. Totally I agree. So it's a tipping point. There was a tipping point, and I'm not. I don't know if it was Larry Fink's letter or what it was, but there is a moment where there 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 is a, a recognition. I would say that when we first started talking to investors, and this wasn't universal, obviously, because we were able to raise enough capital to launch the fund. But when we first started talking to investors, the the significant, the typical response was, this is really not an investable thesis. Climate is not something that belongs in an investment process. You know, maybe you can get some foundation money because you're kind of mission aligned right. type of Had thing. A family office to back <laughs> But that that this was not. I think there was real uh, disbelief that this was a serious investment thesis that was going to generate alpha over time. And just to paint a picture for a second for folks, when you were your view was we we're going to raise X and we're going to deploy it into what type of companies? Just to help paint a picture for folks. Yeah. So the, the thought process, if you think about, let's just say the S&P 500, for example, about 4% of it's invested in is energy companies, E&P companies, the Exxon Mobiles, the Chevrons of the yep. world. That's down sig- significantly over the last couple of decades, yeah. but, but it's a pretty small portion of the, of the S&P 500. And then an even smaller percentage is kind of true clean tech companies. We really weren't interested in the E&P companies, in part because the valuations on their reserves were, were not things that we could underwrite, given the need to not to, to divest away from fossil fuels. But then you have the 96% of the rest of the economy, right. and they're all users of fossil fuels, and how they transition away from that use of fossil fuels is one area where you're going to have an economic impact. And so we look at the essentially the rest of the market, from clean tech to the E&P space, to understand how companies are making that transition. There's no question that there are certain sectors where materiality is higher, and those tend to be where we focus most of our energy. Uh, and we, But we also look, just to make sure that we have a balanced portfolio, at names where material materiality can be lower, but we want to make sure we're investing in management teams that have demonstrated leadership around climate change. Right. So if they, the leadership team can understand the risk they're facing and understand that they need a plan of, of action. And it may not be the core of what they do day to day, but they're recognizing it affects whether it be their supply chains or their manufacturing facilities or whatever. That's right. That's absolutely yeah. right. Fascinating. So I want to continue down this path for a second, but I do want to step back. You, know, you wrote an article not too long ago, which I thought was really powerful about uh, also the inaction here. I think the opportunity around where investing is 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 going is you know where, where the conversation will definitely go. But 
you know, I think that there is a recognition that as, you know, the economy continues to grow, uh, that as climate change continues to get worse, if we're not making these, if we're not thinking about climate in our investing, that the risk is is far greater than uh, than obviously we do. Can you talk a little bit about that inaction and you know why that is is so scary if we don't if we don't continue to take the action that we're we're starting to do now? Yeah, well, I, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand. I think there's a slightly different question you're asking that I'm going to answer first, and then and try yeah. to answer your question, which is. What is the motivation for the inaction? Why has the issue of climate change, just even away from investing, been one where there's been so much resistance, particularly in the United States, when the scientific evidence has been significantly overwhelming and quite a bit more compelling than things that we take for granted? And we understand, for example, the science behind climate change much better than we understand the link between smoking and lung cancer. But you don't have 50% of the population saying, you know, lung cancer is some sort of Chinese hoax. I mean, it's just, right. it, you know, and, you know, there's a, there's a political component there, but there's also, and I think it's, it's interesting that our thesis, it was helpful that our thesis sort of developed, not in lockstep, but sort of relatively similar timing around kind of the, as we got smarter on behavioral economics and some of the limitations of how the human brain thinks about risk. And one of the things that behavioral economics will demonstrate very quickly is that an issue like climate change, where you have a perceived far off risk, where the impacts are not necessarily immediately direct in your life, is going to be massively underweighted. And we are significantly predisposed to ignoring that risk. So it's not just a political issue. It's actually just the structure of the problem is highly problematic for people to, to, to deal with. And, and that's due to our evolution and how we prioritize things that are kind of in our immediate future. And, you know, a bear is a lot scarier than climate change. Right, right? Right, and that's, right. that's the way that our brains are wired and, and frankly, not totally irrational. It's also why we're not good at preventative health care. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but what? It, but to answer your question, I think to answer your question, the issue of um, just yep. pull that. For, sorry for, so, are you saying that a lot of that inaction was because companies were struggling to look that far out, understand the risk, and then translate that risk into sort of necessary actions, or that there was a mix of that? And as you said, there was you know probably just a some level a. a uh, I don't want to say a disbelief because that's the right way to put it, but just a, a misunderstanding of what those risks could be to them. Yeah, I mean, I was I was saying it more just in, in human terms as opposed yeah. to in corporate terms, but corporations are obviously run by humans, so they they face the same challenge. Um, I think the the sort of simplest way to think about it is that short term and the behavioral economics has also shown this, but short term costs are weighed much more heavily than long term costs, totally. future long term costs, and so. Um, there's quite a bit more wrapped up into why we missed this, but at the very basic level, um, you know, the short-term costs, particularly if you're a CEO of a company, your lifespan's maybe seven, eight years, um, you see costs that are, you know, maybe outside of that window, and you don't necessarily feel like you're going to be rewarded for, you know, lowering what might be perceived as lowering profitability in the short term. I would argue, in fact, there are a number of tailwinds that are being missed by companies would increase profitability, increase you know return on invested capital that are being missed as well, and that may be for a variety of other reasons. But on the whole, there's no question that a significant portion of the the executive suite is is not accounting for the true weight of climate change right now. Interesting. So I mean, we can continue to talk about the the risk side. Um, 
but I think there's been a lot of a lot of literature about you know the, the missed opportunities. But let's let's switch over to the opportunity because so you guys are starting to really think about investing um, going forward. What looking at um, where the potential is in the market, not just today. I look to look out to 2030 quite a bit, and really what this next decade is going to mean to us for two reasons: one, to actually address climate change, we've got to be going full steam ahead here over the next decade. Like, where do you see the investing opportunities now? You know, looking out through 20, uh, through sort of the end of the end of the decade, like as people are understanding ESG, the cultural revolution around this, the you know, Greta Thunberg effect is in full force, right? Boardrooms are not just thinking about it; they're being forced to think about it by shareholder action. You know, that we we probably have reached that tipping point, hopefully. And now, now the question now is like, okay, how great can the change be to get us here over the next ten years? And where do you sort of see the opportunities here? Yeah, well, it's a really interesting question. I think the, and I, I'm I'm just gonna pull on one thing that you said just sort of around ESG investing, because I do think today a lot of ESG investing is actually not meeting the expectations of what investors think they're getting, which is a right. shame because a quarter, you know, one out of every four dollars that's being invested in the public equity markets is going to ESG investing, which means it's one a out of every four dollars. Yeah. And it's a huge amount of influence in terms yeah. in, into the capital markets and, to, and getting corporations to do the right thing. Yeah. So one every four dollars, and really, the data is still not clear yet, right? The metrics on what they're getting, all this stuff is still very opaque. That's right. And yeah. so I think investors feel like they're getting, you know, better ESG companies. The challenge is, and this is a sort of a topic of conversation we can spend hours on, but the punchline is I, I'm not sure that they are necessarily getting better ESG companies. Um, just at the very high level of that, um, you know, if you look at the ESG data aggregators, there's very little correlation between what is a top ranked ES or G company among one versus the other. And the equivalent of that is, you know, if Moody's, Fitch, and S&P were rating someone's corporate debt and one rated it an A and somebody else rated it a C and everybody just said, oh, well, I'm fine with the A. That just right. isn't the way that the world works in kind of traditional investing. It shouldn't work that way in ESG. There has to be greater correlation among the, the data aggregators. And then two, not only does the correlation have to be higher, but the it actually has to be you know, audited in a way that means it's substantive, that it's actually telling you something about the company's economic exposure to those things. And I'm not sure we're there yet either. Right. Do you so, think that like, the efforts in Europe around like the taxonomy or the current, you know, obviously the administration's efforts at the SEC, that some of the clarity will begin as the metrics begin to be more defined? And, and that's where I, I sort of I want to be careful about how I talk about this because there's no question meaningful steps are being taken by government regulators to uh, make this data more more credible. We're just not quite there yet, right? And I think that remains a challenge and a missed opportunity because of the amount of money that's flowing into ESG funds right now. At some point, and, and so I highly encourage a taxonomy to and support, and you know, we work with Ceres and other folks that are advising these advising different government, the SEC, for example, to 
you know, create these frameworks that we can all agree and understand. And then they can start being, the data can start being analyzed the same way that financial data is being analyzed, right? And that's when the, the capital markets really thrive. Right. Um, unfortunately, we may be a little bit further away from that than anybody wants to admit. If you look at the sort of history of depreciation and how long it took over a decade for corporations to, or for the different regulatory agencies to settle on a definition of depreciation. And so it's going to take some time. Really? Oh, it's, yeah. It's, I mean, wow. so, so we take, you know, gap standards for granted, right? You know, the, the, the accounting, accounting standards, standards are granted, but they take a long time before there's, there's full agreement. And anybody who's invested in the public equity markets or anywhere will tell you that like, even though there's standards and these numbers are audited and there's clear guidelines and rules, there's still a lot of wiggle room in terms right. of how companies can report information. So um, we're still many, I mean, I would argue, and, and SASB will tell you this, SASB is the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board. They will tell you that we're at least a decade off from having audited numbers that we can rely on consistently across companies. So a, a decade off, a decade from now, when we have those numbers, the audits are there, <laughs> do you see sort of a Moody's-esque rating on people's ESG that you, you're able to invest invest thoroughly on? Yeah, and I don't and, and, and I don't mean to be too skeptical here. I, I no, apologize no, if it sounds too pessimistic. There's it's gonna it's not gonna be kind of an a black and white line. Doesn't change the markets overnight, right? It, it's it's gonna be an evolution. It's gonna get better and better and better over the next decade. And I think what I would say to you, John, and, and other investors that are interested in this space is that there is an inefficiency in the market as it relates to ES and G investing. If you believe, as I do, for example, that climate change is going to have an economic impact on publicly traded companies, what you can then infer is that there isn't that data is not easily accessible to the average investor right now which means that there's an opportunity set for investors to potentially take advantage of that and generate some alpha. Hopefully that alpha disappears because everybody's doing it. Right. That's the goal. Right. And that and that we are accounting for the true cost of climate change in our public equity and in, across the capital markets and our investments. We're just not there right now and the small benefit to people that really think about it thoughtfully and invest around it thoughtfully is that they should be able to generate some alpha between now and then and when that happens. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to ask, this is super, super interesting. I look forward to, you know, continuing this conversation uh, over time as we're sort of progressing over the next decade. Uh, and I'm going to change, totally switch on here for a second as, as someone who, you know, left school studying political science. And if you could go back to yourself in, in 1998 and sit down and have a beer, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Uh, that's a great question. So you mentioned I went and I worked at Lehman Brothers. Yeah. And b besides telling myself not to go work for Lehman Brothers. <laughs> uh, on a Were you there to the level, end till they shut the doors? What's that? I was there until they shut the doors. Wow. And, and listen, I worked with some amazing people. Their fixed income group was was best in class. And so I don't, that's sort of, I say that tongue in cheek more than anything else. Yeah, of course. Um, but the lesson that I did take from that, which I think is applicable throughout life, as well as what I'm doing now, is if you looked at my career trajectory, I started uh, trading fixed income bonds. And in when I was about mid-20s, mid to late 20s, I started trading credit default swaps. 
And I went from trading, you know, I don't know, five, $10 million of risk a day to hundreds of millions of dollars of risk very quickly. And when that was happening, there was that little voice in the back of my head that said, I'm not sure that we understand this risk as well as we think we do. And it's escalating very quickly. And it was to my benefit. I was being compensated because I was trading a lot more. And and I always thought in my head, listen, there's a guy that's at the time 40 that I worked for. Like that guy definitely knows what the risk is. And he reports to somebody senior to him. He certainly understands the risk. (laughs) And, you know, everybody gets it. Somebody smarter than me gets gets this risk. (laughs) And while my desk and what we did had nothing to do with with Lehman's bankruptcy, it was emblematic of probably looser than one might like risk controls. And I think the lesson that I would tell myself is don't presume that because there's a structure built around certain risk expectations or that somebody senior in the room understands the situation, that there's always somebody that understands the situation better than you. Pursue that question that is maybe there's something that's been missed here. Yeah. Because more often than maybe not more often than not, but if you pursue it enough, you might find something that's been missed. Interesting. Interesting. And clearly sometimes you can find an opportunity to that. And you might find an interesting opportunity there. Yeah. yeah. So you can obviously learn more about Red, Red Grove Cap, Redwood Grove Capital at redwoodgrovecapital.com. Uh, you know, Ted, I want to thank you for the leadership you guys continue to show, the thought leadership, you know, putting out pieces uh, sort of regularly for folks to see. You know, definitely you should be following you guys on, on Twitter and LinkedIn. And, you know, there's so many people interested in really trying to wrap their heads around what's happening in, in ESG today. And this conversation hopefully will help shine a light for many of them. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure for me, too. Absolutely. Thanks for the team at Clean Capital. You always get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Thanks to Carly Batten and uh, Colleen Young, our producers. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.